0: Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of John. We'll be discussing Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine, as well as Jesus removing the money changers from the temple, and Jesus' prophecy that he would be raised from the dead in three days. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't I open us up in prayer? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for this group. I thank you for the opportunity for us to gather and study your word. And as we continue our study of the Gospel of John this morning, I just ask that you continue to use your word in a way that transforms us. We're going to be with family and friends. We're going to have lots of opportunities that, through our words and actions, reflect you to others. And I just ask that you continue to transform us through your word. We're so thankful that you came to save us. Help us be mindful of the incredible gift that you've given to each and every one of us, and that is our salvation and our faith. And we're so thankful. And I just ask that you speak through me this morning. Let it be your words, not mine. God, our discussion, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we left off last time with John chapter 1. We're now into chapter 2, so I'll pick right up. In the first verse it says and on the third day there was a wedding in cana of galilee and the mother of jesus was there so a couple of things here we see third day what does that mean it's important to remember when we're going through this first part of the gospel of john that john's gospel does not give an account of john the baptist baptism of jesus that is really covered by the other three gospels It's covered by Matthew and Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. The events that we're reading about here in the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of John, beginning in John chapter 1, verse 19, actually happened sometime after the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, but we don't know when. We do know that Jesus was tested by Satan for 40 days right after he was baptized by John the Baptist. We read about that in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, Mark 1, verses 12 through 13, and Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. So the events that are described in John's Gospel, beginning in chapter 1, verse 19, into chapter 2, were sometime after Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. And what we read in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, is referring to the witness of John. You can look at verse 19, which says, And this is the witness of John, when the Jews sent him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So it appears that a possible chronology, as we read through chapter 1 and 2 in John's gospel, that refers to the next day, the next day, We know that sometime prior to day one, beginning in John chapter 1 verse 19, that John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and then Jesus was tested by Satan for 40 days. So these events happened sometime after Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Beginning in John chapter 1 verse 19 is referring to the witness of John the Baptist to the Jewish religious leaders as they were questioning him whether he was the Messiah. So, a possible chronology beginning in John chapter 1, verse 19. Day 1, that's when John the Baptist gave his witness that he was not the Christ. That's in John 1, verses 19 through 28. Then day 2 is John the Baptist gave his open witness that Jesus was the Son of God and describes what he saw when he did baptize Jesus sometime prior. When it says in John chapter 1, verse 29, that the next day talking about John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching, one possibility is that this was not when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, as John the Baptist had done that previously. He's now giving witness as Jesus approached as to what John the Baptist saw when he previously baptized Jesus. Or this could be John the Baptist continuing his testimony of what happened the next day after what John the Baptist was describing in verses 19 through 28. That's in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. Then day 3, that's when John the Baptist, two disciples, being the apostles John, who wrote this gospel, and Andrew, when they followed Jesus. That's covered in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. And then day 4, Philip and Nathaniel met and followed Jesus. And that's covered in John chapter one, verses 43 through 51. So then when we get to verse one of chapter two, it says on the third day, that's talking about the third day after Philip and Nathanael met Jesus. And so it's actually day seven. And this is when Jesus did his miracle of changing water into wine at the wedding of Cana that we're going to read about. So that's a possible chronology of the events and days we've been reading about, beginning from John chapter 1, verse 19. I hope that helps. And also here in verse 1 of chapter 2 of John, we see there was a wedding. It's in Cana, and Cana is very near Nazareth. And we also see, mentioned the mother of Jesus. Now, in John's gospel, John never refers to the mother of Jesus as Mary. He always refers to her as the mother of Jesus. And we also know that in John's gospel, he never refers to himself as John. He refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Okay. And so this is consistent. This is just how John writes. So I wanted to point that out to you. This wedding event, weddings were a huge social event in the Jewish culture It really was the end of the betrothal period. When you got engaged, you might be betrothed. It might last a year before the actual wedding ceremony. And what that was for was to make sure that your wife was pure, to make sure that she was not already pregnant from somebody else. That was one of the reasons. But sometimes it would last a year. So a wedding was a really big social event and concluded this betrothal period. I think here that Jesus is going to choose a wedding for his very first miracle has a lot of meaning behind that as well. First of all, it shows very strong biblical call for a strong family. That's how a family begins with a wedding. It also sort of foreshadows that Jesus is going to marry the church. That's a wedding. And so Jesus chooses a wedding to do his first miracle that we're going to read about this morning. Also note that Joseph is really not mentioned in the Gospels after Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 50. He may have been dead by this time. That's what most people believe. He was probably had passed away by this time because he's just not mentioned at all. And we know at the very end, and we'll see that in John's Gospel when we get there, that when Jesus is on the cross and getting ready to die, some of his last words are to tell John to take care of his mother Mary. And so Joseph was definitely not present then. Okay, let's keep going. So here we are, third day, wedding in Cana of Galilee. Mother of Jesus is there, verse 2. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. So this is a big thing. By the way, weddings could last a week. It could be a week-long celebration, and they were very important. They were typically paid for by the groom's family, and the bride's family could even sue the groom's family if there was anything that happened during the wedding that was an embarrassment, that was not good. Like what we're going to see, they're going to run out of wine. That would be a tremendous embarrassment to both families, humiliation, disgrace. And so let's keep reading here, verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, said to Jesus, they have no wine. By the way, it's interesting that Jesus chooses wine for his first miracle. So this is certainly not a proof text to say you should never drink alcohol. Wine was different back then, though. It was way more watered down, typically. They did have strong drink as well, but typically wine was way more watered down than what we have today. The water supplies were not very reliable. Even Paul told Timothy, you remember when we were studying Timothy, to drink a little wine for your stomach. So it was a way to also get fluids in and not have contaminated water. So there was a lot of wine that was drunk, but it was also given for enjoyment. Not to get drunk. I think everybody's read Ephesians 5.18 before. It says don't get drunk on wine. So that's a commandment. So we're not to get drunk. But it would be wrong to say the Bible prohibits alcohol. But that's not what this is all about. I'm just giving you a little background. Okay, so his mom comes to Jesus and says they've run out of wine. Jesus responds in verse 4, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? All right, some of your translations may say, What does this have to do with you and me? And he says, My hour has not yet come. So Mary had waited. Remember, Jesus is 30 years old now. So she's been waiting 30 years to reveal that Jesus is the Son of God. Like, you know, here's a perfect opportunity. I know you can take care of this problem. You know, here's your chance. Let's do it. Let's show them here what you can do, that you're God. Mary had progressed in her faith, and she knew that Jesus could take care of this. But now Jesus says, my hour has not come. So Jesus is really saying, look, what you expect out of this, this isn't the right time. What you're wanting to see, that's going to happen in about three, three and a half years from now. We're going to stick to God's timetable. Then look what Mary responds and says in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to do, you do it. That is timeless teaching right there. Whatever God tells you to do, just do it. Okay? Just do it. And she walks away. I mean, (laughs) this is awesome teaching. Just obey and trust the power of Jesus. Mary's certainly enlightened now, knew that Jesus is God. He's the boss. Just do what he says, she says. Verse 6, now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. I love this detail that John gives. First of all, they're stone pots. They're not clay pots. The reason for that is clay pots will absorb contamination. And these were used for ceremonial cleansing. And so they use stone pots to hold the water for that because the stone wouldn't absorb the contaminants like clay would. He also tells us how much that they will hold. And so this calculates to about 120 to 180 gallons of water, which, as we know, is going to turn into wine. That is equivalent to about 2,400 servings of half-pint glasses. That's a lot of wine. That's abundant. That is abundant. That's enough wine for several days. And again, this isn't a proof text promoting abstinence, clearly. But again, we're not to get drunk on wine. It's also interesting that in Amos, you can go look at that. Amos wrote a very short book in the Old Testament. He's of the minor prophets. We remember those are just shorter books. If you look in Amos 9 verses 13 through 14, it describes, in fact, I'll just go over there real quick so you don't have to. This describes the restoration of the kingdom that is promised in the Abrahamic covenant. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. And I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So he gave them the land. He gives them the grapes to grow on the vines to make wine. He gave it to them. They didn't earn it. I think that says that there's going to be wine flowing when the Messiah comes. Jesus said at the Last Supper, He said, I won't drink this cup again until I come into the kingdom. So let's go back over to John. So we got six stone pots, and Jesus says in verse 7, He says to the servants, Fill the water pots with water, and they fill them up to the brim. He wants it to the brim. Nothing can be added to it. It is all water. It's to the brim. There isn't any funny business going on. It also speaks of abundance that they fill it to the brim. Verse 8, And Jesus said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. That's like the head waiter is the master of the banquet, master of the wedding feast. And so they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, meaning that can even be interpreted as saying when they've become drunk, when they've drunk freely, like they've had a whole bunch, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. So he's saying, usually you serve the good wine first, people get a little bit inebriated, then you bring out not so good wine, and that's what is served. And here he's saying, look, you're bringing out the good wine now. So a couple of things about this. First, you look at the vessels. These are imperfect vessels. In fact, you notice it says six stone water pots, seven in the Jewish custom, the Hebrew custom was the number of completeness. This is only six. One thing that you could take from this is Jesus wants to use us as vessels. We're unclean vessels. We're imperfect vessels, but he wants to pour into us pour into us and do something wonderfully working in and through us as he's done with the water in the stone pots. He wants to fill us up. The other interesting thing is this wine that was created, I don't know how many of you all enjoy wine, but usually wine that has gone through the process longer, it's got age, it's a better wine than a brand new wine. If you notice, Jesus created this wine with age. So why is that important? You get into discussions with people about creation. Adam, he was created. Was he created as an infant? No, he was created with age. He was already of age, okay? God created him. He already had age. Don't you think God could have created the earth with age? Everybody gets hung up on Genesis 1 trying to date the earth, you know. Well, it doesn't line up with all. I have no idea how old the earth is. Nobody knows. And everybody tries to place it into certain, it's either billions and billions of years old, or it's, no, it's just maybe six, 8,000 years old. Genesis doesn't talk about that at all. In any event, God can create things with age. He can create the earth. It might not be billions of years old. He can create it with age. It might be billions of years old. It doesn't matter. I don't get hung up on that. There are a lot of people that get hung up. I can't believe this Bible because I get in Genesis 1 And there's no way this could all happen according to my understanding of geology. And so I'm not going to believe this book. Well, chapter 1 of Genesis wasn't written to date the earth. It was written to say God created it, okay? Just trust that. If you trust that, then you can go on with the rest of the story. It isn't about dating the earth. And here we see God, Jesus, creates wine with age. Obviously, because it's really, really good wine, it says here. Okay, so let's go back to the text, verse 11. This beginning of his signs, and that's what John is going to call Jesus' miracles as we read through. He's going to call them signs. This is the first sign. And John's going to actually describe seven signs as we read through his gospel. Why does John make such a big deal about these signs? Go over to the very end, and we'll get there eventually. Go over to the very end of the gospel of John, the very last two chapters. Look at John 20, and I'm going to read verse 30. It says, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So John's saying, I gave you some of them, but there were a whole bunch more. I just gave you some. And why? He says, I've given these to you, verse 31, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's saying, look, I didn't even write them all down, but the ones I gave you, I'm giving them to you so you can believe that he is the Son of God, and by believing in him, you will have eternal life, you'll have salvation. And then look how he closes out his gospel. Go over to the very last two verses. So the last two verses, it says, this is the disciple, so he's saying, this is John, who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. John's saying we know it's true because we saw it. Verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. So Jesus did so many miracles. John saying if I wrote them all down, the books throughout the whole world couldn't even contain them all. All right, I'm just giving you some so that you'll believe. Amazing, isn't it? Okay, let's go back over to our text. Verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. So he's saying, look, this was his first one. I'm not going to give them all to you, but this was the first one. And he did it in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So his disciples placed his faith in him. John doesn't say, and many of the guests also put their faith or came to saving faith at this time. Nope, that didn't happen at that time. But his disciples are saying, okay, there's something about Jesus here. We're going to see throughout the gospel, they don't totally understand everything, but they're beginning to see. This is the beginning here. Verse 12, and after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum, Capernaum is where Jesus made his headquarters for his ministry in Galilee. Capernaum was also the home of Matthew. It's about 18 miles from where the wedding was performed, where Jesus did his first miracle. So he goes down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. What's interesting about verse 12 is this totally blows out of the water, the Catholic teaching that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That's what they teach. They believe Jesus didn't have any brothers or sisters. They hold Mary in such high regard, and we should. We should hold Mary in very high regard, which she went through. I don't think sometimes Protestants hold Mary in high enough regard, but the Catholics take it out of context and say Jesus had no brother, you know, Mary had to be perfect. They even believe Mary had no sin, by the way, because they want Jesus coming out of a totally cleansed, perfect womb but yet we saw when we studied the other Gospels where Mary says in her prayer that I need a Savior. The problem with that whole theory, which a pope came up with long ago, and so that's what they go with, the problem with that theory, if you say, well, wait, Mary had to be without sin so Jesus could come out of a sinless womb, well, then what about Mary's mother? It falls apart. It just doesn't hold together. Anyway, just another one of those, you scratch your head and go, who came up with this? Okay, so he goes with his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Then verse 13, we're going to see Jesus leaves them and just goes with his disciples for the Passover to Jerusalem. It says, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So here Jesus leaves his mother and brothers to head off with the disciples to really begin his public ministry now. And this is the very first of the three Passovers that we'll see in John's Gospel. The other ones, if you just want to make note of it, is in John 6, verse 4, and John chapter 11, verse 55. It's also interesting here in verse 13 that it's called the Passover of the Jews. It's not called the Passover of the Lord. And I think the significance of that could be that we just finished our study of the epistle to the Hebrews, where the new covenant replaced the old covenant. So Jesus is going to replace all the Old Covenant celebrations and all the stuff that was required under the Old Covenant. It's interesting as we finish up here with the first miracle that Jesus chose to do his first miracle with wine in old jars. And then the Last Supper, Jesus uses a cup of wine as a symbol for the blood of the New Covenant, the cleansing blood that would satisfy God's requirement for payment for our sin forever. And I think it also shows, again, that God can make things out of nothing. Jesus made wine out of water, just like in Genesis. You see Mary's reaction also. I think this was probably a very close friend of Mary's in the family. They're all there, present. And I think Mary really didn't want to have her friends embarrassed by running out of wine Her own wedding, think back, was pretty disastrous. She was pregnant during her betrothal. I'm sure she went through a lot of ridicule. You could be stoned to death back then for being pregnant out of wedlock when you were betrothed. She knows what she went through and she sure didn't want her friend's wedding to be as messed up as hers was. I'm not saying she wasn't very pleased to have been given the opportunity to give birth to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, here's an event where the other Gospels place this event later chronologically. But I actually think in the other Gospels, it could possibly be a different event of the same, cleaning out the temple from the money changers, because in the other Gospels, it describes as happening during Passion Week. And this seems to be a different timing, according to John. So I think one way to square those is that this is a similar account, but at a different time. Verse 14, and he, that's Jesus, found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. Okay, what's going on? Why is all this going on in the temple? Well, remember that the Jews had really been exiled all over the place as they had been attacked over the years, and other nations took them into captivity. So they knew that the Old Covenant still required them to come to Jerusalem for the Passover and bring sacrificial animals or at least to somehow have an animal to be sacrificed for their sin. And so the religious leaders saw a great opportunity to turn it into a really money-making situation. Number one... Because they were coming from distant countries, and even if they were in Jerusalem, they needed to change their coinage into the Jewish coinage to pay the temple tax and what have you. And so they set up these money changers who would charge a fee, obviously, to change the money. Because they had to travel so far, it would be more convenient to travel and then get there and buy an animal, right? And so they had this business of actually selling animals that could be sacrificed, And I'm just guessing that maybe because the animals to be sacrificed had to be without blemish. If you're a Jewish leader and you're wanting to kind of make some money, it's real easy to say, look at that animal. It's traveled all that. That's not perfect. You got to buy our animal. And so they'd set up this money-making enterprise and Jesus doesn't like it. We're going to see here verse 15. And he, Jesus, made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise, like a house of trade. He wasn't happy about this at all. The temple was supposed to be used for worship, and they had really turned it into a cash machine is what they were doing. And we can even see this today, maybe even in some of our churches I've heard people say, yeah, I go to church every Sunday because it's a great place to either meet a girl or to make some business acquaintances, people I might be able to do business with. Certainly not coming to worship. They've got other motives. And there's even pastors who charge some pretty significant fees to do public speaking as they go around. So there has been some commercialization even in the churches. Verse 17 So they see Jesus doing this, and the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. That's out of Psalm 69, 9, which prophesies that Jesus was going to say, this is my father's house. I've got zeal for my father's house, and I don't like what you're doing in it. There's also another reference in Zechariah 14, 21. Let me just go over there and read that one to you. It says in every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts and all whose sacrifice will come and take care of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. And a Canaanite, which is translated in what I'm reading from as Canaanite, it means merchant, trader, all about making money. So that could be a reference here also to the new kingdom because that's what this is talking about in Zechariah here, the new kingdom, that the new kingdom, there's going to be worship, but there's not going to be money changers. They're not going to turn anything into a merchant-type show. So the disciples are, remembering that this was in the Old Testament, verse 18, the Jews, therefore, and this is the Jewish leaders, therefore answered and said to him, said to Jesus, what sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? They're trying to move the topic off of their really wrongful hearts, and they're challenging Jesus' authority here, saying, Look, what do you think you're doing here? You can't come in and disrupt our temple business. Like, we're the Jewish leaders. Under what authority do you think you're doing this? And, of course, Jesus has shown them the authority he has. Single-handedly, he drives them all out of the temple. He doesn't need any help. They're asking for a sign for his authority and he knows that they're not going to believe any signs from him anyway. We'll get there eventually. John 12, 37, I'll go over there real quick and read that to you. It says here in John chapter 12, verse 37, But though he had performed so many signs before them, before the Jews, yet they were not believing in him. Okay? So he knows more signs aren't going to do them any good. But look how he answers. He says in verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So the temple there, this is not Solomon's temple. That had been destroyed hundreds of years before by the Babylonians. You can read about that in the book of Ezra, chapter 5, verse 17, describes the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Babylonians. And to rebuild the temple, I think it was somewhere between the period of 20 B.C. to A.D. 63 to rebuild the temple, which was then eventually, as we know, destroyed by Titus in A.D. 70. But the reconstruction was completed in about A.D. 64. And look what they say in verse 20. The Jews, therefore, said it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? They're saying, what are you talking about? It's interesting that these words that Jesus said in verse 19, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up, they're going to be remembered by the disciples at his resurrection when they see him. The other neat thing is verse 20 also helps date this for us. It helps us date this around A.D. 30. The time that's being spoken about here is A.D. 30. Verse 21 says, But he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. He's not talking about the temple building. He's talking about his body. Jesus is the new temple, and it's important for us to always remember and recognize that the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of believers. A church is not a building. We don't go to church. We are the church. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We are the church we're the bride of Christ as the church. It's not a building. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture, meaning the Old Testament, and the word which Jesus had spoken, which then became the New Testament. So they believed, they remembered. They don't understand it right now, but John is making note right here That when he was raised, they reflected back on, oh yeah, we remember Jesus said that he would be raised in three days. Remember, they didn't even believe after Jesus was buried that he was going to rise again. Even when they were told by the women that had seen Jesus, they couldn't believe it. Let's continue on. Verse 23, we'll finish out. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus, at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. Jesus' miracles reveal who Jesus was, that he was God, so that people could believe in him. It authenticated that he was indeed the Messiah. Not all of his miracles were recorded. We saw that at the end of John, but that's why he did these signs. Here, though, in verse 23, where it says, many believed in his name, this is just superficial infatuation. They liked his signs. They did not have saving faith. They were just sort of outwardly attracted to him. They thought it was cool. And you're going to see here in a minute, in another verse, what I'm talking about. Just believing in God is not enough. Let me go over to James. I'll go back over there real quick. James is just on the other side of Hebrews. James 2 verse 19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So just believing that God exists, that's not enough. That's the same thing that the demons believe. Satan believes that God exists. Satan's not saved. That's not enough. Go back over to the text, verse 24. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knew their hearts. He knew that they may have intellectual assent that perhaps he's God, but they don't have genuine saving faith. There's no commitment, and that's so important to understand. Saving faith, you've got to have intellectual assent, but then you've got to have spiritual appropriation and personal commitment. You've got to be committed to Jesus. It's not just saying, yes, I believe there's a God. That is not saving faith. Verse 25, And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he knows what's in us. He knows our heart. He knows how messed up we are, and Jesus was not looking for human approval. These people didn't have saving faith. I'm running out of time, but go back and look at the parable in Matthew 13 about the sower and the seed. It's really the four possible responses to the gospel. And the first one is basically they reject it outright. In the next two, they sort of have infatuation in the beginning. It sort of sounds good. It's the neat thing. Like, you know, yeah, that's kind of interesting, this Jesus, this Christianity thing. But either hard times come or all the riches and material things of the world end up just choking out their fa- They never have true saving faith. And that's a problem. There's people even sitting around us in our churches that don't have true saving faith. You got to have a true heart making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior alone for your salvation. That is, you believe that Jesus paid for your sin, and that's the only thing that's getting you out of death row, of going to hell, is what Jesus did for you. Anything you do that you think is good is still not good enough to get you to heaven. It's only by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that you go to heaven and you believe that because of that, that's the only reason you're getting in. That's what gets you saved. That's saving faith. So let me just sum up here. And then I'd love to hear your comments or what resonated with you. First of all, we should seek to glorify God in everything we do, even at a wedding party. And we're getting ready to be with families for the holiday seasons. We've got lots of opportunity to reflect Jesus to others. Not for bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to God through our actions, through our words. And we should never overlook the opportunity for ministry to others. Don't pass by those opportunities to mention the gospel to anybody in your family that may not be saved. Just love on them. Answer their questions. You may not have all the answers, and all you got to say is, I don't know about that. I'll find the answer for you to that question. i got a friend I can call. You can call me. I'll help you find the answer. But this is what I know. Since I put my faith in Jesus Christ, this is what's changed. Just remember the blind man. I don't know how he cured my blindness. I was blind, but now I see. I don't know. I don't know how it was done. Next point, do what God tells you to do. It's interesting that he mentions Jonah. Gosh, I failed to go over there and show you that scripture in Matthew 12, 38 through 40. That's where Jesus references Jonah. I'll go over there real quick. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, saying, teacher, We want to see a sign from you. See, they're always asking for more signs. They're never satisfied. We want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I love that scripture in Matthew because it confirms that, yeah, Jonah wasn't just a story. We studied the book of Jonah a while back. If you didn't catch that, you can go back to my recordings. I think we did two studies on Jonah. Incredible story. But Jonah wouldn't do what God asked him to do in the beginning. And here Jesus is confirming Jonah did exist in that study I show you in the Old Testament that he did indeed exist as a prophet. And here Jesus is saying, yep, he was in the belly of the fish for three days. And just like that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into the tomb for three days and then rise again. And don't be like Jonah because Jonah said no initially to God. God told him to go preach in Nineveh, which were the hated enemy of the Jews. Saving faith is not just intellectual assent, as I was saying. To have saving faith, you've got to believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Jesus knows all about all of our hearts. There's no secrets with Jesus. He knows what's on our heart. We saw he knew what was on the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders' hearts. So don't think you got secrets from Jesus or from God. If you've got sin, confess it. It's not for your salvation. If you're a believer, you still have salvation, but you impede the ability of the Holy Spirit to work in your life with unconfessed sin. And finally, I'll just ask each of us, even myself, what does God want to clean out of our temple? We see him going into the temple and cleaning out the money changers. But what do we have? What things are we still grabbing onto in our own lives and clinging to that God wants to cleanse from us? Pray that he puts that on our heart and that we allow Him to do so, which will even draw us into a closer relationship with Him. So with that, what questions, comments might you have? What resonated with you today? I think just remember we're in God's house, so we need to act. We need to act accordingly, and that's kind of what He's trying to teach him here today. Yeah, and actually God is in us. The Holy Spirit indwells us as Christians, and so anytime we are doing something that we shouldn't be doing or reacting that tends to be my problem blowing up where I shouldn't. I'm supposed to be a representative of God and I'm acting like that and I'm bringing the Holy Spirit right into it because we are his temple. That's what scripture says. We are the temple. It's not the building right out there. We're the temple. We got the Holy Spirit and when we're doing things we shouldn't be doing or saying things we shouldn't be saying. No, we're not. We're not being an ambassador at all. I never get tired of the level of detail I never get tired of that. It, it constantly encourages me to see the, the writings and the note-takings and the timelines. and the, I can imagine more of what it was like to right. be there. Right. And that's one of the reasons I love John's gospel. I think it's fascinating when he says things like destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. We have the benefit of hindsight. Right. These people didn't. Right. So they think he's just a lunatic. I'm going to rebuild this huge thing in three days. Yeah. Even today with modern construction equipment, you couldn't do do that. back then, you know, 46 years. Yep. And isn't it neat how John is writing this after all this happened? And he's reflecting back and he includes in this verse 22, therefore when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. Isn't that cool? Why do you think he pushed back? on the water to wine thing. I mean, he first of all, he calls his own mother woman. <laughs> <laughs> if, yeah, I ever, if I ever did that. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you bring that up. That is just our translation. He said the same thing in John nineteen twenty one. It actually means lady. It can mean my dear lady. It sounds to us like that's really harsh. Let me take you over where he said it. John 19, I think it's 21 or 25. Let me go over there and look real quick. I meant to comment on that, so thanks for bringing that up. My Ryrie says that the term, dear woman, was a term of respectful address. Yes, okay. Yeah, it's in John 19, verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, he's on the cross, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. So that's not a derogatory. He's basically saying, dear lady, It's actually a term of endearment. One of the things that confuses me with all the various translations, like Greg just said, dear woman, and they took out the word dear. Well, it's because dear isn't in the Greek. Here's the problem. In my translation, maybe yours says woman too, it's actually taking the Greek and translating it literally, okay? But the thing about the Greek is it has so many different, they have many words for the same thing. And each little word has a nuance. Yeah, it would be better if it said, dear mom. In any event, that's more what it means. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.